If you have your Bibles, will you open them up or turn them on to Daniel chapter 3? Daniel chapter 3, let me start by asking you this question. Have you ever thought about all the measures that our society goes through to uh, educate us and to help prevent fires? A lot of education on our side. By the way, I want to congratulate uh, Chuck back here. Chuck, I understand you were named captain of the Duncanville Fire Department or something like that. He's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, congratulations on that. So um, I know you've, you've worked hard to get to that point. Uh, whenever you have children, the, the, like my son Ben at age one, he'll have fire trucks. He'll probably get fireman outfits for Christmas. And then whenever children go into school, we immediately start teaching them uh, what to do in case of fire. You have fire drills. The firemen come to the school and they show the children what to do in case of fire. Sometimes you have field trips where you go to the fire station and you see how they operate within our homes. We have smoke alarms. Hopefully you have some fire extinguishers in your home and buildings like this. Uh, we have a sprinkler system, all this so that we could be prepared for fire. But I wonder how much time do we spend preparing ourselves for the fires of life? Those little fires that we walk through on a daily basis. The verbal fires, whenever those vision vandals come into your life and they try to throw fire on your dreams, whenever you go to work, and the managers of the mundane at work try to throw fire into the office place. Those champions of the Eeyore fan club that are in your family that you see at Thanksgiving and Christmas where they try to drain your enthusiasm and criticize your every action. How do you react when the verbal flamethrowers begin throwing their criticism towards you? There's also jalapeno fires in life, those fires that just kind of sit in our stomach, those financial worries, those health worries, those losses that we go through in life, and they just slowly burn within our soul, and they're like a fire within us. Then there's the Fox News fire. If you're a Democrat, the MSNBC Fire. It doesn't have the alliteration that I used before, but you have those world events. You have things like ISIS, the election that I talked about, immigration, the economy, all these different challenges that we face in the world, and those tempt us to worry, and they're like little fires burning around us. And then there's family fires. Some of you have the fires of passion. Some of you have seen the fires of passion turn into the problems of personality. Sometimes parents re worry, wrestle with those cute little kids that have grown up into smart alecks. And then we come into the holiday season and we see Andy Griffith morphing into the modern family. And so we have family fires that we deal with in life. I was watching uh, an interview with a man the other day who is an ultra runner, and this guy ran the Badwater 135. Have you ever heard of that race? It starts out in Death Valley National Park, 
and they run through the Death Valley Basin, which is the hottest place in America. It reaches temperatures of 130 degrees in July. The races run in July. So they start out in Death Valley, and they run 135 miles to the Whitney Portal. It is so hot that they have to run on the white stripe in the highway or their tennis shoes will melt. And this guy was talking about all the different training that he goes through to run 135 miles in 130-degree heat. And he said a lot of the training is not physical. A lot of the training is mental. Because whenever you go through a race that long and that intense, you will undoubtedly face low spots. And so he said something that captured me. He says, I have to train for the low spots. I have to train for those moments when my body is broken down and my soul is tested so that I can react in the proper way in those low spots. I train and prepare for that. Well, it got me to thinking, if we are going to survive the fires of life, we have to be prepared for, we have to train for the low spots. We have to know that they're coming and prepare ourselves ahead of time for them. Well, in 605 BC, Daniel, the great prophet, had his ultimate low spot. Daniel was just a young teenage boy He, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were hanging out at Jerusalem High School. They probably didn't have major worries in their life. They were probably concerned about who would be their prom date. Can we beat Samaria High School in the upcoming football game? Can I pass pre-Cal? But then King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire, he marched his army up to Jerusalem. He besieged the city. And he conquered the nation of Judah. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken to Babylon. They were taken away from their families. Their identity was changed. They were taken away from their friends, from their homes. Everything that they knew, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken away from. But there early on, the Hebrew four made a decision, and that decision was that the Babylonians could take their lives from them, but they couldn't take their soul. If we're going to train for the low spots, we need to realize that changes can come into our lives. You can have changes in circumstances when it comes to where you live, who your friends are, your economic status. There can be all sorts of different changes to your circumstances, but I want to encourage you that no matter where you are, whether you're at high school or in college, no matter where you are in your job, no matter where you are in the community, that no one is going to steal your soul because your soul remains faithful to God no matter what. Well, things started looking better for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In time, they began adapting to their new life there in Babylon, and they began establishing their lives there. Daniel helped the king in chapter 2, and as a result of that, he and his friends were promoted into leadership positions. Times were good for Daniel, 
But then in chapter 3 and verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. And then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now you'll remember in chapter 2, we studied this last week, the king had a dream. And in that dream, he had seen a colossal statue. It was made out of four different kinds of metals. He was troubled by that dream, and so he called all the advisors together for someone to tell him the dream and interpret it. Daniel was the only one that could interpret the dream. And he told told the king that there would be four kingdoms, but the top of the statue was made of gold, and the gold head of the statue represented the Babylonian kingdom. And he told King Nebuchadnezzar, God has exalted you. He has lifted you up to be the king. You are a great emperor. You are a great king. And you are the gold head of the statue. Well, Nebuchadnezzar kind of hydroplaned over the last part of the dream that the statue would eventually be crumbled and that the Messiah would come and he would be the ultimate king of kings. Instead, he really focused on the fact that he was the gold head of the statue. So he decides, you know what, I'm going to build a big Tex statue of myself. And I'm going to put it right outside the gates of Babylon so that whenever people come into Babylon, they can hear me say, Howdy, folks. Welcome to the Babylonian Empire. And I'm going to build it out of gold so that nobody can catch it on fire. And that's going to be a great statue to me, King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, then he throws a great festival, and he calls all the important people together. He calls the satraps, his cabinet, his closest advisors to the festival. He calls the prefects, the generals. And so General MacArthur and Patton and Eisenhower and Schwarzkopf, they all come. He calls the governors, and Rick Perry and Chris Christie and Andrew Cuomo, they all come. He calls the judges. And the Supreme Court justices couldn't refuse this case or this invitation. They had to come. And then he calls the advisors, the magistrates, the entire government. He calls to this great statue unveiling. I would imagine the entire empire was watching on their iPads. I would imagine that school had been let out so that everybody could see the great unveiling of the statue. It was a spectacular scene. A massive crowd had gathered. They had a huge band. Music was playing. There was probably fancy food, but no one really knew exactly what the king had in mind. So the crowd gathered, and the herald loudly proclaimed in verse 4, People of every nation and language, you are commanded. 
In other words, all these people that have come here to Babylon from all sorts of provinces, you speak different languages, you come from different homelands, but the king has called you together and you are commanded in verse 5, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. It was kind of his motivation program to get you to do what he wanted you to do, okay? Verse 7, Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the king had gathered this great crowd of government officials demanding that they display their loyalty to him. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they could do that. He was the king of the empire. Certainly they could acknowledge that he was the king and that he was the ruler of the land. But then he went too far. He subpoenaed their soul. He said to them, I'm not just your king I want to be your God. And when that music plays, you are to fall down and you are to worship me, King Nebuchadnezzar, as your God. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had determined a long, long time ago that the Babylonians could take their life, but they could never have their soul. And so they refused to worship. Well, the verbal flamethrowers came onto the scene. The Chaldeans, they were devil worshipers, known for their familiarity with the occult. And they quickly pointed out to King Nebuchadnezzar that the Hebrew three were not worshiping. So King Nebuchadnezzar is angry, but at the same time, he knows Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so he calls them before him. So these three Hebrew men come before the king. Everybody's watching. And the king says, well, maybe, maybe you didn't hear it the first time. They're supposed to play the music. The band hits the notes. And after they play the music, you're supposed to bow down and worship me. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm going to give you one more chance. And the Hebrew 3 replied in verse 16 to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Now, I want you to notice here that these three young men had determined to live with a positive faith. They had determined that they were going to believe in God, His goodness, His strength, and that they were going to be positive and place their faith in the power of God. And so you notice three things about their response. Number one, they were respectful. 
they recognized the king as the king. They weren't, they weren't belligerent. They didn't yell and scream and throw things and, and, and be disrespectful. They were honoring to him, but they were also faithful to their God. They said to the king, you know what? We believe in our God. We believe that he can rescue us from this fiery furnace, and we believe that he can rescue us from your hand. And then number three, they were realistic. They said, well, you know, God is God. He doesn't do just what we tell him to do. God can do whatever he wants to do. That's kind of part of being God. So even if he doesn't rescue us from the fiery furnace, uh, we're still not going to worship a gold statue. We will never bow down and worship you, king, as God. How about you? When the fires in life begin to burn, how do you respond? Do you respond with a negative faith that says, well, you know what? I knew God didn't really love me. I knew God really wasn't in control. And instead of running to God in the fire, you run away from God and you start playing God yourself. Do you respond with a doubting faith that says, well, looks like real-time problems are too big for my God. I doubt he has anything left, so no need in really worshiping him anymore. Or do you respond with a positive faith that says, you know what, this is tough, but I believe in my God. I'm a follower, I'm a worshiper, I'm a disciple, and I believe that he's going to take care of me, and I have a hope in eternity, and I can say, just like the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. So even if uh, they take my life, even if this disease gets me, even if I don't survive the mission trip, I still know that my faith is in Christ and he has me for all eternity. Well, when the Hebrew 3 told the king that they were not going to bow down, it didn't really set too well. King Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage in verse 19, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think he was fond of these three young men, but when they said these words to him, his fondness went away. And he gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army. He commanded Steve Baggett, and he commanded Rick Walker, and he commanded Brian, no, not Brian, he commanded Tony Emo. He commanded them to come and tie up these young men and throw, sorry, Brian, and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. And so, verse 21, these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. Sorry, Rick. Sorry, Steve. But good luck to you, Brian. You weren't chosen. Verse 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. The king Nebuchadnezzar had demanded absolute loyalty. And the Hebrew 3 went against his orders. So now for the king, he had an embarrassing situation in that 
he was dealing with this in front of all the people in the government. Yet he also had an opportunity. He had an opportunity to show his force and to show everybody what happens when you fail to praise the king and you fail to do what the king orders. But I want you to realize a third fireproof thought. Before God can deliver you from the fire, you have to go through the fire. The great victories in life are almost never found in the lap of luxury. Think about it. Before Rocky won the championship, dun da da dun da da dun da da da, Mr. T hit him so hard, sweat went flying across the ring. But then he got up out of that tribulation and won the championship. For those of you that go back a few years, you remember Roger Staubach. Roger Staubach is the greatest comeback quarterback in the history of the NFL. He was known for bringing the Cowboys back at the, from, the, from the brink of defeat. In the last two minutes, there was Roger Staubach. But before you become the greatest comeback quarterback in the NFL history, you have to first of all stink it up for three quarters and get down by three touchdowns. The Cowboys would play horribly for three quarters, and then Stallback would come in, and triumph would come out of tribulation. Great triumph always involves great tribulation, and there are times when God builds us up, and he matures us, he grows us, and he uses us for his glory by taking us through fires in life. Do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego we're scared. I do. I would be scared if I'm thrown into a fiery furnace. Yes, I believe God can deliver me. Please hurry, God. All right. All right. We're actually, they're opening the door. God, you can deliver me now. Sure, they were scared. But God had to take them through the fire so that the triumph could come from the tragedy. Well, by now, the smell of popcorn was in the air, and the nation was sitting on the edge of their seat. Is this going to be a happy ending, or is it going to be a Shakespearean tragedy? Well, in verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm, and he said to his advisors, didn't we throw three young men bound into the fire? Well, yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, but walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire, and he called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. You say, well, how did they do that? How did they survive the fire? Well, this is what we call, friends, a miracle, okay? Now, miracles are not that difficult to believe. If you can believe the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then the rest of the Bible is quite easy to believe, okay? If God can create the heavens and the earth, then God can deliver three young men from a fiery furnace. And here's the fourth fireproof point that I want you to notice today. 
And that is that when we are in the fire, we need to hold on to God. I find it interesting that King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to watch. Do you realize that when you go through the fires of life, people are watching you? You say you're a believer in Christ. You say you go to church on Sunday and you do that church thing. Well, people are watching how you live. And they're watching you whenever things get difficult. They're watching you when you get laid off or whenever your uh, finances go through a stressful time. They're watching you whenever you're dealing with that health issue, when that loved one passes away and they see you go through the valley of grief. People are watching you and they're seeing, how is this Christian in my life going to respond? And when you're in that valley and you show that it is your relationship with God that sustains you and your belief in God is more than just talk, it becomes an influence for the gospel. It draws people to the cross. When people see you let go of God in the fire, it confirms their cynicism. But when they see you draw close to God, when they see you take those steps of faith and walk through the fire and they hear you be a believer even in difficult situations, it causes them to pause and say, wait a minute, maybe there's something here. You see, it's easy for people to argue with you about your beliefs, but it's very difficult for people to deny you your experience. And when they see you go through the difficult experiences of life with faith, it becomes a testimony to the power of God. Well, in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know everything about God, but he was smart enough to know that only God could have delivered him them. So he says, Praise to that God. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him, this pagan king had built a great statue seeking praise. But he had forgotten that in chapter 2, at the end of the dream, that the praise was not for the king. At the end of the dream that, jo- that D- Daniel had interpreted uh, in the previous chapter, there was a rock that comes from the heavens. And that rock destroys the statue, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. They were all sent to rubble. In fact, they were like the dust after a harvest, Daniel says. But there is a rock that grows into a great mountain, and that great mountain would fill the earth. And the dream was all about the fact that God was going to send his son and that his son was the king of kings and the Lord of lords and that his son would conquer death and that his son would be the the great king that would reign not just for a season, but his son would reign for all eternity. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten about the king, about the end of the dream. He thought it was all about himself. But God, in a way that only he could, turned the king's praise into God's praise. You know, that's one of the things that God does. He takes difficult circumstances, challenging times, fires, if you will, and he's able to turn those into moments 
of praise to our God. And this is my fireproof thought number five for you today. Remember this. God's in control. Remember God's in control. I look out at the crowd today and you guys look good. You guys are looking good today. You're awake. Looks like you got extra sleep last night. I don't know why. And I'm so very, very thankful for our church. I'm thankful for you guys being here today. I'm thankful for the spirit that we have. Uh, This is a friendly place. It's a place where we're living life together. And I appreciate all you do to make the ministries of Murphy Road go forward to make this a place where we want to be, to to make it a place that's enjoyable to worship at. I thank you for how you care for one another. And it's encouraging to me to see you guys growing in the faith. Uh, We're not just a country club. We're not just about self-help with a twist of Jesus. But we're digging into the Scriptures and we're trying to be true disciples that are following Jesus Christ in every area of our lives. But I'm also aware of this, that behind smiles and greetings, behind, hey, how you doing? What's the kids doing? Behind all of that, there's some real problems that we bring into the room today. There's some real heartaches. And so I just want to remind you as we finish today that our problems don't surprise God. The Bible says that God knew us before we were ever born, that he knit us together in our mother's womb, that he has foreknowledge, and he knows me yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so when I find myself in a set of difficult circumstances, God doesn't say, oh, wow, I I didn't know that was going to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm just as surprised as you are. God has a plan for your life. There's a destination point that he's driving you towards. The scriptures say that God desires that you might be conformed into the image of his son. And so sometimes he's taking you through fires and sometimes he's taking you through stretching times that causes your soul to be exposed. But he's growing you and he's maturing you and he's making you into the image of his son because you're a part of his family and you are adopted into the family of God for all eternity. And there's a destination point. When you look back in your life, you can see how God has been at work. You can see how he began to show you your need of Christ and how he began to work in your life. And you can see how he's taken you through all sorts of things in the past. And whenever you look inside, you realize that you are who you are because of the grace of God, that you are justified because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and that you are secure in Christ, and that you are loved dearly by your heavenly Father, not because of your righteousness, but you are loved dearly by the heavenly Father because of the righteousness of His Son. And whenever you look ahead, you realize that you have something that is true, hope. You have a word called hope that doesn't just mean, I wish tomorrow to be better than today, but you have a word called hope that means that no matter what happens tomorrow, I am in God's hands for all eternity. As believers, when we look ahead, we come to the realization that even though there is a lot of brokenness in our world and there's a lot of things that just aren't right, children get sick, tsunamis hit, all these things that are just fractured, we realize 
that God has sent his son. God is redeeming his heart. And one day the rock of heaven will come again and he will reign as king of kings. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and our hope will be completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we look ahead to that day and it allows us to have the strength to press through the fires today and to say with the Apostle Paul to live as Christ, to die as gain. And when we begin to put all that together, the result is that we praise God. And so I close with the passage that I read earlier in Romans 8 and verse 35. It's right after a Mount Everest section of Scripture where Paul says the creation itself is groaning because of its brokenness. Where Paul says believers are groaning to the Lord because of their troubles. And Paul reminds them that God is in control. And then he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Hey church, who can separate you from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or family or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, In all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded of something. I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God's in control. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray? The band's going to come, and we're going to have a time of worship. During this time of worship, I'll be here at the front. If I can pray with you about anything, it's always my delight. If today is the day where you need to become a believer in Christ, please come see me. Come see me during this next song. Come see me After the service, I want to talk with you about what that means. There's a lot of people in this church that can help you uh, with questions about what it means to be a believer in Christ, and we want to be an encouragement to you in, in that decision. Church, we've gathered here in this moment today to worship our Lord, and don't let the truths of what we've seen in Scripture escape you. Music is a language of the soul. And so when we hear truth from God, we respond to him with our soul. So let's pray, let's sing, let's give, let's truly worship in these coming moments. Father, I thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. And I thank you, Father, that even whenever we find ourselves in the fire, you are there with us. And Lord, sometimes you take us through the fire to grow us. But we pray, Lord, that praise might be brought to your name. And that's why we've gathered here today, because we praise you as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Lord, you are the one that we worship. We don't worship ourselves. We don't worship our leaders. We don't worship uh, power. We don't worship money. Lord, we worship you. And so we proclaim to you today your goodness, and we realize that it is out of the reservoir of your goodness that all things are true, that all things are precious, and that we find uh, a forgiveness for our past and purpose for our present and hope 
for our future. It's in Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen.